Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook, because it's time for another cockpit adventure from the flying carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America, and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Most pilot listeners will be familiar with the annual Air Venture Fly-In at Oshkosh, Wisconsin, the largest pilot gathering in the world. But have you ever considered what draws attendees to travel vast distances to get to the massive event? And the journeys required to get them there? Sure, AirVenture offers air shows and seminars and exotic aircraft and all the latest airplanes and gadgets any aviator could wish for. But would it be the same attraction if all of us could just walk across town, pay the fee, and enter through the gate? I think not. Oshkosh is about the journey to get there as much as it is about the event itself. And I'm talking not just the physical journey, but the emotional one. Okay, everyone. Hop aboard my flying carpet, buckle your seatbelts, and prepare for takeoff on today's adventure. Flight number 18. Pilgrimage to Oshkosh. Clear prop. Crowds, craziness, music. It's enough to justify a road trip. I'm not talking Woodstock here, but AirVenture, a surprisingly similar event hosted by the Experimental Aircraft Association every year in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. AirVenture's tunes come not from wailing guitars, however, but from airplane engines. Big ones, little ones, round ones, flat ones square ones, even upside-down ones. Vying like Stratocasters for the crowd's approval are roaring radials and screaming Merlins. Like Woodstock, there's a crowd of individualists here. Their tents pitched under airplane wings as far as the eye can see. Here people keep their clothes on, but where else can you watch a rocket-powered biplane blast 4,000 feet straight up? No wonder we, the faithful, are drawn each year to this mammoth tent revival, worshipping side-by-side the flying machines that draw us skyward. The wonder of Oshkosh extends beyond AirVenture itself to the innumerable aerial road trips spawned by the event. Where did you come from? And what did you fly here? For one week a year, these questions fuel conversation at Oshkosh and airports all across the country. New pilots and old, fledglings and eagles pile into everything from ultralights to biz jets and migrate from far corners of the continent toward Mecca. 
I myself launched one sweltering morning from amid giant cacti of the Arizona desert. Normally my travels are guided by carefully crafted flight plans. But that seems inappropriate when Oshkosh bound. Any combination of events, wind, and weather can alter one's interim destinations on the long 8-10 to hour journey. So I prefer not to set any. This is a spiritual journey, after all. So I make no commitments, just steer northeastward toward Wisconsin and wonder where I'll end up. Here in the mountains are certain funnels through which most light airplanes must pass. From Phoenix, I direct my flying carpet eastward toward Glorieta Pass and Las Vegas, New Mexico. Along the way, I traverse forests and mountains, cinder cones and lava flows, ancient adobe cities and modern Albuquerque. Then, on my left, materializes old Santa Fe, where my buddy Bruce lives. The urge to stop is powerful. I rarely see him. But the day is young, skies are clear, and satellite radio traveling tunes prod me onward. Perhaps on the return trip. Beyond Las Vegas, mountains become memories, and earth transmutes ever so gradually from brown toward green. Featureless barrens stretch unending until perforated by irrigation circles in western Kansas. Great lime-hued rings plopped on gingerbread earth. Munching fruit and celery from my cooler, I ponder what crops might thrive in those rings and the lives of the farmers who tend them. My fuel gauges are bound for empty, plus I'm itching to get out. I scan my tablet sectional chart, and wow, look at all those airports. To a guy fixated on landing at every Arizona airstrip, this rediscovery is a revelation. Airports are worthy notches on one's pistol in more isolated country, but here in the Great Plains they lie at every crossroad. Hmm, there's a nice one ahead. Garden City, Kansas. What's there, I wonder? I'll stop. Going to Oshkosh, queries the Garden City Tower controller when I report in. Sure am, I reply. Lots of traffic headed that way earlier, she says. Some unusual planes, including a squadron of Chinese yaks from Arizona. Those are from my old home airport, I reply, surprised. I've been taking pictures, she continues. Brought my camera to work with me this morning. Under me, the huge airfield is empty when I turn downwind, except for one solitary piper parked on the ramp. I never do see the pilot. It's nearly as hot here as Arizona. Disembarking into blistering sunlight, I'm greeted by an older man wearing a seed corn hat. Welcome to Garden City, he says with purpose, extending his hand toward mine. My name's Phil. I introduce myself, too, and before long find the flying carpets tanks topped with fuel, my pockets filled with candy, and a new friend in this high school science teacher who teaches aviation and works summers at the airport. I'm making good time, better than expected. Rejuvenated by Phil's welcome, I remount the flying carpet and call for clearance. I've never been to AirVenture, says the tower controller as I taxi out. What's it like? 
Briefly, I attempt to recount past visits to the legendary event before departing her airspace. Have fun at Oshkosh, she says before handing me off, and stop by Garden City on your way home. Might just do that, I say, meaning it. How can such a quiet place offer such a warm welcome in so few minutes? Across Kansas I trek, then southeastern Nebraska. I've never been to Lincoln and consider stopping. But I want to arrive early enough to cinch a parking space in Wisconsin. Crossing the Missouri River into Iowa, I ponder the few bridges for groundbound travelers and re-enter my hazy Midwestern youth. The earth is emerald here, smothered by thick, damp air, and shrouded with a cool comforter of clouds. I'd forgotten the richly manicured creeks and riverbeds marking this part of the country. Have I changed too? It all seems so different than the untamed landscape of my adopted West. There, civilization is veneer. Here, it's one with the earth. Lower and lower I drift, savoring the friendly ground beneath me. One can't cruise at 2,000 feet above sea level like this in the West. That's mostly underground. And so many trees. Vapor shrouds Iowa and Wisconsin. This is bad news for others, but good for me. VFR pilgrims will be stalled for a few hours, meaning that for me as an instrument pilot, the low clouds offer new hope that tie-downs might remain available at my destination. Some aviators consider instrument flying unnatural, but for me it's salt of the earth. Climbing through Stratus, I relearn the song sung by Cessna wing struts whistling through the soup. Reassured by such music, I soon cruise on top at 5,000 feet while my VFR compatriots scurry for openings underneath. En route, I peep through a hole in the clouds at my aviator's birthplace, Madison, Wisconsin. Ahead in twilight materializes Dodge County Airport in the little town of Juneau. I land in clammy mist and breathe the dense air. Everything is sticky here compared to the dry west. When flying east, I always wonder for the first day or two if I'm sick. Hot dogs await me here, and friendly faces. But a lump fills my throat. Grandpa Shorty used to greet me at this airport after I married his granddaughter. We often drove together to what was then called the Oshkosh Fly-In. There, biplanes kindled tales of barnstormers from his youth. Where's Grandpa and his old Pontiac? The terminal is new and the airport expanded, but time has failed to shield me from the pain of his absence. One can fly most anywhere, I suppose, except to the past. Renting a car, I meander between memories and great red barns toward Oshkosh. Though warm friends and fellow pilots await me up the road, there's also loneliness at such huge gatherings. Not like the rich company of sky and clouds escorting my flying carpet on this solo pilgrimage across the country. 
Those happy companions will rejoin me in a few days when I depart on the long journey home. I depart Oshkosh Friday morning, sunburned and fulfilled. There's weather between Juneau and the Mississippi, but seemingly clear sailing beyond that. More purposeful now that I'm homeward bound, I set course to refuel at Garden City. How was AirVenture? asks the Garden City controller when I approach some five hours later. Apparently she remembers my N number. Again, I wonder, how can anyone describe AirVenture in a sentence or two on the radio? The science teacher is off today, but a nice young man tops my tanks. I phone home to update my wife and again launch on my way. Stop in again, offers the controller as I depart. I think she knows that I will. Unforecast thunderstorms now dot my route ahead. Yet even as I bump between them, I find myself pondering how the Garden City Tower controller's question could ever be answered. What is it about piloting that compels so many aviators to joyfully and boastfully trek across the continent to camp midsummer? at the hot, muggy, often stormy, and always crowded aviators gathering. With five more hours to fill, I drift into subconscious musings about what drives aviators to Oshkosh. Why am I here? dodging dark clouds over Kansas. They've thrown down their gauntlets, these black behemoths pierced by the eye of the sun. Dare I accost them with my lone chariot and its meager 230 horses? What brings me to the sunlit chasms of this place, teetering between beauty and violence? Flying for so long seemed to me a respectable vocation, or at least a harmless avocation. But given the obsession demonstrated by most pilots, shouldn't flying be more appropriately termed an addiction? After all, the urge to fly differs little in character from other compulsions. Aviators become obsessed with the curvaceous forms of airplanes, endlessly seeking the high of rotation for takeoff. It starts innocently enough. A flight somewhere for lunch piloted by a quote-unquote friend. Next comes a lesson or two, followed by cravings to caress the controls and cavort with cumuli. The insidious nature of this progression is invisible to all but the most perceptive of family and friends, at least until the victim moves on to the hard stuff, like an instrument rating and flying aerobatics. Suddenly, the truth assails our loved ones like a research airplane flying into a hurricane. Let's buy an airplane, spouts the intoxicated aviator. We'll skip the trip to Europe and spend summer vacation at air shows. By then it's too late, and we aviation junkies find ourselves seeking increasingly frequent fixes at the airport. Victims at this late stage develop a unique facial tick, causing their eyes to roll skyward at the sound of any passing aircraft, even when indoors. 
Next thing you know, we're battling crosswinds with broadswords and tilting at thunderheads like those taunting me today. Surely there must be some 12-step WINGS program offering relief. The most fanatically addicted aviators install couches into their hangars, where they devote all waking hours to detailing instrument panels, fondling fiberglass, and buffing aluminum. Refrigerators and even televisions are not unknown in these corrugated hovels. Who among us has not heard legends of some poor soul ostracized by spouse and family, who in desperation took up residence in some dilapidated hangar, obsessively pursuing flight even while eluding airport authorities like some modern-day hunchback of Notre Dame? All this in pursuit of life among the clouds. Notre Dame, its sacred spires soaring skyward, and those flighty clouds billowing across the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. If flying is not an addiction, it must be a religion. Don't we aviators venerate the spiritual aspects of flight in much the same way as worshippers at church? The proselytizing, the urge to convert others to join the assembly of aviators? Believers worship in sheet metal chapels before four-bladed propellers, six-bladed simtars, and yin and yang emblazoned turbine inlet spinners. The most pious of aviators initiate into mystical societies harking back to the Middle Ages of aviation and known only by cryptic acronyms like AOPA, CAF, the 99s, and EAA. Guiding their rituals are high priests of the FAA. At fly-in services around the country, adherents gather their novices each weekend among the dusty reliquaries of aging hangars. There, the faithful debate doctrine from worn volumes of the Aeronautical Information Manual and queue in long lines to consume pancake-sized hundred-dollar host. Steaming black coffee symbolizes motor oil coursing through the arteries of revered aircraft engines. No wonder so many pilots, adorned in aviator chronographs and airplane earrings, make this epic pilgrimage to the holy city of Oshkosh in central Wisconsin for the annual tent revival and gathering of the faithful. Perhaps one day the air venture grounds will be consecrated into a permanent aviator's temple where we could worship what's dear to us tithe our flying money, and deduct the donations from our taxes. Collections could be taken to benefit the impoverished denizens of the lower aviation castes. Excuse me for a moment. That noise. Please join me in lifting our eyes heavenward. From whence comes that divine sound? Is it not the baritone siren song of a radial-engined angel? Come, let us assemble a procession and follow our messenger to Oshkosh. Sunday? No, pilots don't worship on Sunday. 
Haloed with hallowed headsets and anointed with fuel strainer gasoline, we congregate on Saturday noon at the airport cafe under the four-engine B-17 bomber. There, while others preach flying fish stories of big ones and small ones and ones that got away, I will quietly ponder these great Midwestern storm clouds blocking my way, grumbling and growling and spitting spears of lightning to the ground. How at the last moment before I bowed before them and fled terrified toward the nearest airport, they parted like the Red Sea and let me pass, sparing me to toy with on another day. Be it from addiction or religion, we aviators climb as close to heaven as airplane wings will take us. Yet like all true spirituality, it's not something you can easily talk about. Silent moments and lonely hours away from earth and especially the imprint on one soul of dark clouds over Kansas, pierced by the eye of the sun. And the destination? Oshkosh. Thanks for riding along on today's Flying Carpet Adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite Flying Carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, you'll find my views from the flying carpet aerial photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh, And I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet. And consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.